This is the Celebration Rock Podcast presented by 93XFM here in Minneapolis and UpRocks.com. I'm your host, Stephen Hyden. Well, folks, we made it. It's our 100th episode, and I really can't believe it. (laughs) We've been doing this, I guess, for about two and a half years, and uh, we've reached this milestone. And I have to say, it it means a lot to me. I wanted to market it some way. I, I wanted to do a special episode. Uh, So I invited Rob Sheffield, who's one of the most popular guests that we've had on this show, and uh, we uh, we took listener questions, because it was important for me to get the listeners involved, to get you guys involved, because you're the reason why we still have a show after 100 episodes. So I got Rob in here, I got some listeners in here, and we had a really good time. Before we get to Rob, though, I just want to talk a little bit about this show. You know, we started this in January of 2016. And at the time, I guess I, I had a job, but I was not working, would be the best way to put it. I, I, I was working for Grantland. I was under contract to them. And Grantland shut down on October 30th, 2015. Uh, but I was still under contract to ESPN for like another nine months after that. So I was in the situation where I wasn't allowed to work anywhere, but I was still getting paid you know, if I would have found another job, ESPN would have happily canceled my contract. But, you know, this was a time in my life that I felt was pretty unique. You know, you don't really get many opportunities to get money for nothing. You know, so I was like, I'm going to take advantage of this. But it meant that I couldn't freelance for anybody. It really technically meant that I couldn't do a podcast. I didn't run it up the flagpole at ESPN. I didn't ask, hey, is it okay if I do a podcast? But I knew that they were pretty restrictive in terms of me doing anything that might make me money. And while this podcast has never been a big money maker for me, uh, to say the least, you know, it technically was something that I could have monetized at that point. So I was probably violating my contract by starting this podcast, but I was bored. (laughs) I had nothing to do. I was sitting around. It's funny because around the same time that I started this, I started writing the book that became Twilight of the Gods, which is a book that's coming out in May. So I started the book and I started the podcast around the same time. And um, it's really exceeded my expectations. You know, the thing that I found, the thing that I was maybe most surprised by from doing this is the connection that you make with listeners when you do a podcast. You know, I've been writing for a long time now. I've been in the business now for almost 18 years. And, you know, there are people that I hear from, you know, who email me or I'll see them at concerts. You know, they'll they'll say that they've read me for a long time and that's always great to hear. Um, But whenever someone comes up to me now or whenever someone emails me, they always mention the podcast. You know, they might mention a book. They might mention, oh, I read you at Grantland or at Uproxx or the AV Club, but they for sure always mention the podcast. And there's something about doing the podcast where you create a bond with people. You know, people feel that they know you in a way, you know, because you are talking to them 
in their car, at the gym, you know, wherever they're listening to podcasts, there's an intimacy to it that you don't get if you're just a byline. That's something that I, I don't think I, I think I maybe understood that going into this, but I didn't totally appreciate the power of this. So that's been a really great thing. And it's just meant a lot to me that this was something that I built with Derek Madden, who's the producer of this show. You know, we built it. We had no expectation that anyone would actually listen in, you know, because most podcasts, they're affiliated with like NPR or with like other major podcast networks. You know, for a long time, you know, we were totally independent. You know, there was really uh, no one, no one was driving traffic to this podcast other than my Twitter feed, basically. That was the only promotion we were doing. And yet somehow we were able to build an audience. And we've gotten to a point where, where we are one of the bigger uh, music talk shows uh, on iTunes. So that tells me that we're doing something right on the show. But it also tells me that we have really great listeners who are willing to go with us no matter what, no matter if we're talking to like a really famous writer or rock star, or if we're talking to maybe a more emerging artist, you know, I know that there are people who will click on an episode, even if they aren't totally sure who we're talking to, you know, or if they're not into the topic that we're covering. And that means a lot to me. And it, it says a lot to me about the audience that we've created for this show. And that's something that I hope that we can continue to grow and to, to elaborate on uh, as the show progresses beyond 100 episodes and into the future. So thanks again for listening. Thanks again for supporting the podcast. It means the world to me that I get to do this. It's a lot of fun, and I hope it's a lot of fun for all of you as well. So without further ado, it was me and Rob Sheffield. We took listener questions in this episode. We covered a wide range of topics. Whenever Rob is on the show, I always feel like an hour goes by in about five minutes. (laughs) And this episode was no exception. We had a lot of fun. And uh, I hope you guys have a lot of fun listening to it. So here is me and Rob celebrating the 100th episode of Celebration Rock. So, Rob, I want to thank you for joining me at uh, for our 100th episode gala that we're throwing for ourselves. And uh, you were the first person I thought to invite as the guest. So I'm glad you said yes. Man, thank you so much. That, what an honor. 100 episodes. I know. It's, uh, it, it feels like... 99, you know, that's it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But uh, so what I did was, and I told you I was doing this, I asked readers to send in questions to get them involved in the episode. Uh, Questions that I I was like, okay, you need to give give me questions that we can have, you know, me and Rob can have a good conversation here on the podcast. And uh, I got to say, it was a little scant for a while, or at least the questions I got were a little weird. But like this morning, a bunch of good ones came in. So I think we'll be good. Because I, I sent you some last night, and I know you were concerned about some of the questions. <laughs> <laughs> but I think we'll be good. I think I've got some good stuff for us to talk about here. I think so, too. Well, you know, a, like a, a podcast that reaches 100 episodes, that's, that's a tribute to the, the, the tenacity and, and enthusiasm of its listeners. Exactly. So, well, without further ado, let's, let's just get into it. We reached a lot of fellow sick minds, is what I'm saying. Exactly. Exactly. Well, that's why you, you know, that's why we do what we do because we feel we have all this weirdness inside of us and it's nice to hear occasionally from people that they relate to it because then we feel a little less weird. Absolutely. By doing that. So let's begin with our first question here. This is from Matthew in Birmingham, Alabama. And he writes, 
I am a 38-year-old music fanatic with a particular affinity for 80s and 90s indie alternative rock, and I have a confession to make. I have a total blind spot when it comes to pavement. It's not that I don't like pavement. It's that I have a total lack of familiarity with their music outside of the song or two that everyone knows. Why and how I have avoided them, I have no idea, but I have. So my question, and and Matthew says, primarily for Rob, because I know of his deep affection for pavement. What is it about pavement that engenders such a loyal and devoted following? And where should I start if I'm looking for an entree into the band? Man, oh man, what a great question. (laughs) That could be a plant. Seriously. I know, exactly. It is not a plant, though. This is a genuine listener of this podcast. Oh, my gosh. Well, you know, you have so much to look forward to. It's funny because when Pavement came around, they had really in one band all the different aspects of, of, of rock that we were used to hearing and bits and pieces other places. So they were so, uh, so melodic and yet so funny and yet uh, so eccentric and yet so noisy and yet so so tender and, and so sentimental and, and so self-mocking and in, in, in so many ways just really like summed up the emotional range that, you know, that countless other bands got halfway to. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's amazing like to think of like the impact of those first pavement EPs that, you know, that some of us were already over the moon about before it's landed and chanted even existed. And it's weird to think that that was, you know, really just, just the beginning. That was just, you know, the napkin in the lap before the, the meal was served. I, I don't know about you, I would recommend Crooked Rain as the starting point. What about you? Yeah, that, that would be it for me. I, you know, it's funny because I feel like for the longest time, whenever people made lists of the greatest albums of all time, like Sinet Enchanted was, was always the pavement album of choice. And I feel like maybe in the last 10 years, it's starting to shift a little bit to Crooked Rain, Crooked Rain. I know for me, that was the album that was easier for me to get. Like, I like Slanted Enchanted. I think it's a really good record, but Crooked Rain was uh, basically Pavement's version of a classic rock record. There's a lot of classic rock quotes on that record. It kind of has the arc of a classic rock record, and yet it's not a classic rock record. It's Pavement's sort of post-punk version of whatever that is. And uh, so it has the accessibility that you would have maybe from a sort of a classic rock kind of thing, but it feels very much of its time. So it's the best of both worlds in that respect, I think. Yeah, if I, if I, had, to, if I had to sum it up in one word, it would be enthusiasm, is, is what marks that album, that, that there's so much uh, boyish excitement and, and curiosity and adventure and, uh, and a sense of playfulness, but also a sense of you know, really intense emotional reach. And that's something about pavement that it's, 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 it's funny that that's the most underrated aspect of their game in, in retrospect, I guess, is that uh, because people sort of uh, fell into the sort of emotional, uh, conventional wisdom of, of them being a, a little bit uh, stingy on the emotional side, which is, you know, is, is really strange in retrospect. Uh, when, when, when you think about part of why those records were so, uh, had such an impact at the time is, is you know, there were, there were songs that were so just, you know, plaintively emotional and, and sentimental, like like uh, Loretta's Scars on the first album or Elevate Me Later on Crooked Rain, which, you know, of course, was originally titled Loretta's Scars 2. Uh, and that, that all over Crooked Rain, there's this sense of, of, of playfulness and excitement. They're like, wow, like we're actually like doing an album in a real studio with a band, <laughs> which, 
you know, they'd never done before. Slant and Chant was just a tape they did in some local hippie's garage, not thinking anybody would ever hear it. And Crooked Rain, they're like, well, we're a rock band. Like, what if we wanted to play, like, a little, like, five-second Jimi Hendrix solo, like, in, in the middle of the first song for no reason at all? Like, I guess nobody's going to tell us not to do that. And there's just that sort of overall sense of excitement on the album, and, and it, whether it's, you know, jubilation or whether it's, you know, regret. You know, there's some really sad, elegiac songs on the album and, and some really just, you know, excited and happy songs and... You know, and then there's Gold Sounds, which is both. I would I would say if you had to pick one pavement song to to be your map into into the entire catalog and sensibility, it would be Gold Sounds. And you know who does a good cover of Gold Sounds is Fish, which I know you are intimately familiar with, Rob. I'm sure you've heard Fish's cover of that song. Uh, for, uh, I'm, I'm yeah, joking. I actually have. You have. Thank it's you. it's a really good cover. It's really good, and and they, I, with, with, I was told by my Fishhead band, like my. You know the fish. The fish fans in my life at the time was that they were doing it like really early in the set, like in a really sort of so, something about the way they taste it within the fish set was very like unusual for like for a fish cover version. And also that at the time that would have seemed weird, but like in retrospect, you can kind of see why fish would like pavement. Like in like in the '90s sort of scene politics, it would be like, oh, this why is this jam band covering this quintessential indie band? But as time goes on, those those, those well, things and fade away. It's weird to think that those were ever like sensibilities that were seen, <laughs> you know, like like deeply divided. Right, exactly. Um, you've written a lot about pavement, and of course, I mean, you've written enthusiastically about a lot of your favorites. Like, where, where does pavement fit on your sort of personal list of all-time artists? Oh my gosh! Well, I don't know about you, Stephen. They're way at the top for me. Um, they were. Uh, Life-changing is a real cliche, uh, but uh, the way that they sort of uh, were so ambitious, like, creatively and, and, and emotionally. Sorry, I keep coming back to that word emotion because that's the aspect of payment that, that people have sort of written out of their story. Uh, and and like something like hearing, like, uh, a song like Debris Slide, you know, just like you know, one of the very first pavement songs that anybody heard. It was on the the, the thirty P, the Perfect Sound Forever, and that it was you know plainly like you know a parody of an '80s hardcore song. It was a really good parody. It was a really funny parody, but you know, but there was real emotion and excitement in the guitars, and something a little sad in the in the melody, and something a little uh, a sort of unsure in the vocal and. The, the, the sort of emotional hold that that added up to in, in just two minutes it was, it was really like kind of incredible for me so they're uh they're i, I mean to me like pavement are are a band that really changed the way i heard music and the way i thought about art and and life and culture in general see for me i love pavement but in the hierarchy of 90s lo-fi indie bands Guided by Voices is number one for me, and they're like the life-changing band for me because I saw them live a bunch at a very formative age. I think the Midwestern thing with Guided by Voices was very formative for me. The idea of these guys basically being sort of small-town losers, working, you know, Robert Pollard working as a school teacher, everyone kind of working dead-end jobs, and yet on the weekends they go in the garage and they play these songs, and they're like the greatest band in the world. It feeds into 
a lot of the mythology that I have about rock and roll, you know, like anything that, you know, all the things that people put into the replacements and I love the replacements, but like <laughs> I, I put into guided by voices as having been the ultimate kind of, you know, loser transcendent, like the, the transcendent drunken loser Midwestern band, you know, is what GBV is to me. Well, so the Midwest is such a huge part of it with guided by voices. It's funny that if you are somebody who, you know, really loves guided by voices and you've never lived in the Midwest, you're conscious that you're really, you're getting just a fraction of it. You know, no matter how much you love them, there's absolutely no way you could get them the way, you know, somebody who's lived in the Midwest can. It's almost like, you know, I, I love listening to the dead and I don't smoke weed. And so I'm conscious that, you know, I'm not really getting the full dead experience. Or like when I listen to Lou Reed, having never lived in New York City, I'm like, I, I love this, but <laughs> it's like I, there, there are, there's a language here that I'm missing. There's a level that I will never be able to access for that reason. Yes, yes. Like I, I, I've listened to, to dozens and dozens of live versions of the Grateful Dead playing Dark Star, and I've never been high listening to a single one of them. And I'm, I'm aware that, you know, that I'm, I'm getting it through a glass darkly. I'm, I'm, you know, it's, it's not the authentic experience. And it's the same thing way with Guided by Voices, that, you know, like, much as I love them and, 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 and they were, you know, hugely formative for me, but there's always that sense that there's a special part of themselves that, like, that they keep exclusive to, uh, to, the, to the Midwestern, to the Midwestern dudes, and that, you know, that, that's part of their statement. You know, it, in, in the same way that, you know, like David Bowie would fill his songs with stuff that, like, only somebody from London would get. They've got to buy voices on purpose. They make their records, you know, very, like, Midwest-specific. And, and there's something, I mean, Alien Lanes is such a interesting, it, there's a, a, a certain bar I go to in my neighborhood in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, where they love to play Alien Lanes in Crooked Rain, Crooked Rain, uh, two mid-'90s indie rock albums, uh, Alien Lanes from 1995 and Crooked Rain, Crooked Rain from 1994. I often wondered, like, which of those albums is the hardest one to walk out of a bar when it's playing? <laughs> like, Pavement, at least, you know, there's, there's Heaven is a Truck on side two, which is, you know, if you're going to make your, your getaway, that's the song to do it. But, like, Alien Lanes is like, what is it, like 28 songs? And there isn't a single, there isn't a single 30-second stretch of non-awesomeness on it. Yeah, when you talk about how Pavement taught you how to listen to music differently like alien lanes was that album for me you know like being able to understand short songs being able to understand songs that sound like shit but like they're supposed to sound like that you know like that was the life-changing record for me and what's amazing about that record and you mentioned crooked rain crooked rain um i heard about both of those records from reading the lead review in rolling stone like both of those albums were the lead review in that issue that week and that says something about uh these kinds of bands at that moment that they were indie bands but there was also a feeling that maybe if they got the right kind of coverage or they had the right song that they could actually become really successful (laughs) which seems totally bizarre now to even entertain that possibility but that was kind of the feeling at least for a little while that was the delusion anyway that people had about bands like that People were so excited about music. It was just an exciting time for music. And, and you know, part of, like, you had, like, bands like, you know, uh, like, like those two who are just, you know, like, doing something different every album and, and changing and expanding every album. It's funny because, like, when I think of Alien Leans, I think of that one spring in 1995 when, 
you know, when, when Matador was putting out a record every couple weeks and, you know, there'd be like Alien Lanes and then a week later they, there'd be uh, Electro Pura by Yola Tango and then like, you know, a week later The Dirt of Luck by Helium and just, you know, just really amazing like the time when those bands and, and Wowie Zowie and, you know, that, that you've got Pavement and Helium and Guided by Voices and Yola Tango bands that sound nothing like each other but, you know, they are stretching themselves and expanding with every record determined to do something different than what they did last time because they knew there was an audience out there paying attention and, 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 and that would, you know, respond to this stuff. And that was, you know, part of like the challenge between audience and performer. It was really kind of like what made it an exciting time is that these bands knew that people, you know, were raising their expectations with every record. See, this is a good segue into our next question. And it's kind of like a sub-question to the first question, even though it comes from a different person. This is from Andrew in Bemidji, Minnesota. Andrew asks, is it possible to listen to music critically from your formative music taste years without nostalgia clouding your judgment? Because we're, here we are, we're talking about 90s indie rock music, which came out in formative times of our lives. Are we, look, are we thinking about this stuff critically, or is this nostalgia influencing us to think of music this way? Is it possible to separate those things? I think so. I mean, there's no nostalgia in it for me. I mean, honestly, if nostalgia was the main appeal of music, I wouldn't bother. You know, there's lots of stuff that, you know, I'm nostalgic about from those periods that, you know, that I never, you know, I never would subject myself to. I'm just not a nostalgic person by nature. So if a record excites me from 1995, believe me, it's not that I, you know, wish that it was still 1995 or that it would go back to 1995. Um, <laughs> right. it, it, so to me, it's, it's like a really different, a really different kind of thing. And it's, it's rare when there's music that, uh, that I love it at the time. And then after the fact, the only appeal is nostalgia. That just, that just means that it probably wasn't very good. Right. And I was thinking about this. I feel like it's almost the opposite for me where I like, records from certain times in my life just in spite of what was going on in my life at the time because like like alien lanes as an example i don't think my life was that great when that record came out like when i was 17 like there was i was a pretty kind of angsty kid you know i was uh, a junior in high school i was probably uh feeling uncertain about a lot of things i don't really feel any sort of warmth for that period of my life and yet i still really love that record because I think it's a great record. Um, but yeah, I feel like more often than not, like, like there's records that I, I listen to a lot during miserable, miserable times in my life. Um, and I'm grateful that those records were there for me, but like, I, uh, yeah, there's no part of me that wishes like, Oh man, I wish I could go through the worst break of my, of, of my life again, you know, because this record reminds me of it. It's like almost in spite of that, that I still can listen to that music. Uh, absolutely. You know, it's funny because I was, uh, just this morning, I was listening to an album from 1998, uh, the Gang Star album, Moment of Truth. Oh, yeah. And uh, totally loved that album, listening to it. And it's funny, and, and thinking about 1998 and, you know, uh, what an astounding year for music it was. And, wow, like, you could not pay me to, to relive a minute of 1998. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just, you know, what a, like, what an absolutely abysmal, wretched year for me personally. Like the fact that any of that music I'm capable of listening to, just you know, it means that there's there's no stigma of time attached to it at all. I mean, I listen to Gang Star, and 
you know, it's fantastic, and it's from 1998, and it sounds very 1998 in a way, but uh, good Lord, thank goodness it's not imprisoned by, you know, whatever was going on in my life at the time. Pivoting this question out, though, because I do think that this is a common phenomenon where people who, uh, I, I think it's common for people to listen to music that they loved between the ages of, say, 16 and 24, and to, to kind of stay in that era for the rest of their lives. Because, yeah. you know, they remember being in high school and in college, and maybe they're married now, and they have kids, and, like, their life seems more stressful now, and they can listen to, like, Check Your Head or something, and it reminds them of getting drunk in college, and that's fun for them. Is that... Um, is that like illegitimate or is that like kind of like a thing that should be discouraged for people to do? You think? No, I think if that's, you know, if, 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 if that's a pleasure that music gives you, I mean, it's, you know, it's puritanical to be uh, judgy about pleasures <laughs> like that. That's not, you know, that's not the way, uh, you know, that's, that's not the way music works for me, but, but right. you know, that it's, it can't be a coincidence that people tend to really, really, really love the music from the time period, like you said, 15 to 24. Um, what, what I do think should be discouraged is uh, giving up on what comes out after you're 24 and assuming that, like, it sucks. Because, <laughs> right. I mean, it's fine if you just, you know, you're like, yeah, I had my period where I was interested and I'm not interested anymore. Uh, what, you know, with what does seem like it's 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 not right is just you know thinking that things happened to suck and it coincidentally started when you were twenty four. Right. I always have this conversation with people who always want to you know talk about like a particular genre being dead. Like they say rock is dead, or they say hip hop is dead, or you know they don't make real country music anymore. And my <laughs> my counter to that is always that it may be dead to you because you don't feel the same excitement that you felt from it when you were a certain age and it was fresh. And maybe in your mind you thought, this thing is being invented as I'm discovering it. And uh, so, so therefore it was more inventive when I was a certain age, when the reality is, is that you just hadn't heard much music yet. You know, there was a whole history of music that existed before that moment when you discovered it. And it's not necessarily that it was brand new the moment you heard it, it it's just that it was brand new to you. So when it gets to a point where it's no longer brand new to you, you can't just say, well, this thing is dead now. You know, it's just that maybe something inside of you has changed and uh, you have to maybe address that. And maybe if you can, you can find new ways to uh, re-engage with culture, you know. But I think that is a very myopic thing that a lot of people have, maybe unknowingly, that uh, their personal feelings, their personal engagement with things, that marks the sort of the beginning and the end of what culture is. You know, I think that's true for a lot of people. Yeah. But I, but if, you know, on, on the positive end, if you, if you like listening to something specifically because it reminds you, of, it, it rekindles your teen enthusiasms that, you know, there's all the reason in the world to go for that. You know, like my, my sister was a, a little kid in Boston when the new kids were rising. Uh, the new kids on the block, I should give their full name in case you do not happen to be a cognizant in the ways of, of Joe and Donnie and Danny and, and Jordan and John. Um, and the, the new kids on the block were, you know, a, a huge, huge, huge part of her life for, you know, about a, a couple of years. And you know, they all moved on with their lives, and, and partly because they were, you know, basically intelligent and well brought up 
boys who, who made a lot of really like good decisions in terms of their adult life. They have sort of like kept it together and, you know, like they, they, they make music, they have lives, um, you know, they, and they do the new kids cruise, you know, which, <laughs> and, and that the new kids are something where there's no pretense that there is new music coming out of it, but it's, it's something where there's a respect paid to a moment in the audience's life. Wow. I have all the respect in the world for that. Right. Oh, absolutely. And that's one of the most powerful things that music can do. And, you know, it, it is interesting that there is less stigma with that sort of thing now, I think. I think there's like a realization that um, music can do various kinds of things. You can be a band that is always putting out new records, and there's sort of an artistic excitement that comes from that. But there's also something to be said about a band. Um, and I'm going to pull this. This isn't a perfect example because this band still makes records that are pretty good, but like Cheap Trick. You know, like you can go see Cheap Trick at your local casino or a county fair pretty much any summer. And like they're always going to be great, and they're going to be playing like mostly songs from like 1977 to 1981, and uh, they play them extremely well. And to be able to continue to re sort of invest yourself in old material and still pull it off uh, with a plum, I think, is another kind of skill that should be saluted. Absolutely, absolutely. So. Let's go on to our next question here. This comes from Josh McCann. Oh, I guess I guess I, I'm not saying last names. Josh, I said your last name. I hope you don't mind. Josh is from Pittsburgh. Uh, thanks, Josh. Thanks, Josh. He has two questions here. Let's ask the first one here. I'm gonna, and I'm going to answer it first because I think your answer will be more interesting. But he asks, have you ever done any crazy, unpredictable, up-all-night interviews involving bands trashing hotel rooms and throwing televisions out the window? I want to hear some almost famous backstage stuff. <laughs> um, I don't have a ton of stuff like this, but the closest that I would come is I hung out with Jesse Hughes from Eagles of Death Metal, who uh, was again in the news recently for saying some horrible things. He has said a lot of horrible things, uh, a lot of in politically incorrect things, but he's an interesting character. Uh, and, uh, you know, when you're interviewing someone like that, uh, the reporter in you is excited to have a tape recorder going because you know that when you write the story, you're not going to have boring quotes. So I hung out with him and I just watched him smoke a lot of cigarettes and look for drugs and just be sort of an out of control motor mouth for a while. So that's the closest version I have of that. I assume that you have more of that because you work at Rolling Stone and you guys get great access with people. So do you have any good stories like that? Uh, no, it's, it's, I, I'm not like, it's, it's funny because there's, I mean, it, it, I'm, I'm generally not like uh, the person someone's going to throw a television out of the hotel <laughs> window. Like, it, I, I it's, it's funny that uh, to me, like, it's fun to be around rock stars who've been rock stars their whole lives and have internalized the sort of, uh, the protocol of it, that's, that's really fun for me. Like, I was, I was interviewing Aerosmith uh, a few years ago, like, at, at early 2000s, and, uh, and, and hanging out with them for a few days, it, it was fascinating because, and this was Aerosmith being on really good behavior, and I was like, <laughs> wow, rock stars are just wired differently than the rest of us. There was a part where there was uh, a ringing phone, uh, landlines in hotel rooms, Google them. They were, they were called landlines. They kind of suck. <laughs> and uh, so Stephen Tyler is talking, and he's in the middle of one of his 
uh, six paragraph long sentences and the phone is ringing and it really annoys him and he just reaches out and he just rips the cord out of the wall and just keeps talking and doesn't even notice. And it was only about 10 minutes later that I was like, wow, you just ripped the phone cord out of the wall. He was like, that was fun. Like, you know, like, but, but it's kind of a thing where like, I was like, oh, that's something a rock star would just instinctively do without thinking about it. Um, <laughs> but I was talking to Joe Perry later that day and, and he was talking and after, after a few minutes he was like, yeah, you know, the lighting in the room is kind of wrong. And, and he, Called down to uh, to room service, and he says, "Hi, yeah. Uh, could you send up uh, a couple of cappuccinos and uh, some incense and a couple of Moroccan rugs?" <laughs> okay, fine. And he hangs up, and I was like, "Wow, I've got, like if I called if I called room service and made a request like that, they would they would laugh and in, in, they would laugh over the phone and slam the phone down. It's just something that you know, like because like a rock star makes a request like that without even thinking about it. It's it's you know." The, the, the cappuccinos arrived and the incense arrived and the Moroccan rugs arrived. I was like, wow, they have a basement full of like Moroccan rugs in this hotel. <laughs> any rock stars make a request, but that's you know just part of. To me, like, like that's something that's a fascinating part of observing rock stars in their in their natural habitat is when they have just you know been rock stars so long that you know they would be screwed trying to be anything else. One thing I wanted to ask you about, and this isn't hanging out with rock stars, but you covered Woodstock '99. Which is like one of the uh, it's like one of the great disasters in like modern music <laughs> history that I'm endlessly fascinated with. I'm just wondering what your memories are of that. Wow, that was absolutely horrible. I have to say, <laughs> I, like I've seen some, uh, you know, like we've we've all been to festivals that like that, that didn't go exactly according to plan and that we wish we hadn't gone to. Um, Woodstock '99 was just. Uh, it was, and, and it was funny because it already seemed like it was just, you know, a lot of horrible ideas before the final night when everybody burned it down. Like, it seemed like it was already, like, a, a, a pretty bad idea. I mean, it was, you know, basically like a parking lot. It was just a giant, like, slab of asphalt uh, that was, you know, an army base that had been decommissioned. And it was just, like, a, a terrible place to, to you know, trap a, you know, a few hundred thousand kids for us for a rock show. Um, and, uh, and so it was, uh, it was just a fiasco, but it's funny cause I remember a certain point of the weekend thinking, wow, this Jamiroquai set, this is the biggest disaster I'm going to witness all weekend. It turned out that was a little optimistic. <laughs> cause I remember Jamiroquai did not turn out to be one of the top 10 disasters. <laughs> that weekend. Jamiroquai escaped uh, prosecution for that one. Because um, I, I remember <laughs> reading... Like they're handing out candles to people, and they're, they're encouraging people to light candles while the Red Hot Chili Peppers are playing uh, because you know, they want to create a sort of photogenic moment of people holding candles, like it's lords or something. Like, right. You know, pilgrims at a shrine. And uh, the Red Hot Chili Peppers are playing Jimi Hendrix's Fire, and it was like... Yeah, you know, maybe this was not the most well thought out plan. <laughs> Wasn't there a because I remember reading a story where like you were talking about like women just like flashing people like randomly. Like, wasn't that happening or something? Like, just just like bizarre sort of like uh, bacchanalia happening there before it really kind of turned evil. Am yeah, I just remembering it's the kind of thing that? where that that. Sex principle versus the violence principle sort of like went up against each other, and, and sadly, the violence principle like was 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 winning. Uh, it, it was uh, just a really 
I think part of it, you know, the grim surroundings, you know, wasn't like a bucolic back to nature sort of environment. Uh, it really was on an army base. And, uh, you know, the National Guard was there doing maneuvers. And, you know, it, it was, it was a sort of like, uh, it's kind of a fiasco waiting to happen. Um, and, uh, and it was, uh, yes. And, and just, and, and, the music there was, you know, there's so much great music that weekend. It was really just a, a strange mix of, of very uh, positive energy and very negative energy. I mean, I looked at that. I mean, at the time, were you thinking this is this is like the '90s Altamont? I mean, that's what it kind of seems like, like in retrospect. I mean, did you have any kind of grandiose feelings like that as you were there, or was it just like get me the hell out of here? It it, it was. Uh... It was weird in terms of like that that Altamont thing. In terms of uh, there was uh, there was a sense that it was sort of a sort of '60s idealism plus a certain kind of '90s idealism, um, and uh, just up against you know the really you know crude realities that you know that that it's you know people just. Uh, Need water and they need shelter, and uh, in harsh surroundings, people are very bad at taking care of each other, especially when there's drugs involved. And uh, and, and and to see that kind of decline over the course of, of the weekend was, uh, was 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 really weird. Um, and uh, and yeah, it was it was uh, a festival. Also, you know, with like all the. Uh, just sort of the you know the infrastructure of a festival is always an interesting thing, um, and uh, I you know, because I like festivals more than more than most of my friends, and I usually have a good time at a festival, you know, and I you know and, and I'm a uh, just you know I'm the kind of person who paces himself during a festival and plans ahead and you know like wears a hat and brings lots of sunscreen and earplugs and stuff like that. I'm just you know uh, an over preparer that way, and. Uh, and it was it was weird to be even just like on the first day of Woodstock '99, walked around and I'm like, wow, nobody brought earplugs and nobody brought sunscreen and nobody has a hat and everybody is like drinking crazy amounts of dehydrating fluids in the <laughs> afternoon sun. I was like, wow, this is just you know, it's going to take a toll and and it did take a toll. It take, took a toll on everyone just being around it. And then the, then we're gonna listen to Limp Biscuit and uh, things will get really crazy after that. Yeah, I, I, you know, when, 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 when George Michael passed away on Christmas a couple of years ago, and I was thinking about his legacy, and I was like, well, it is kind of strange that I did actually want to eat Limp Biscuit inside a riot with this song. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Uh, yeah, George Michael, your legacy lives on in many, many, many strange ways. Um, a, a, a happy memory of Woodstock 99 I'll give you is, is uh, it's just a very specific Willie Nelson memory that Willie Nelson played on Sunday morning and just, and the sort of hunger that people had for Willie Nelson that I had for Willie Nelson, uh, after, you know, two days of, you know, being on a military base surrounded by barbed wire with like really like, you know, high, like toxic violence levels. Uh, something about like, I've listened to, to Willie Nelson and seen Willie Nelson and heard his music many times. And yet like, it had never been such a sort of primal spiritual craving. And to see like sort of Willie Nelson sort of like 
cater to that in the crowd. It, it, it definitely like was a sign of like, this is why he's Willie Nelson and nobody else is, you know, <laughs> right. and this is the element in the human soul that Willie Nelson always speaks to like nobody else. Right. Like if you have been in an environment where it is absolutely impossible to get any sleep or any shelter, uh, or any like solid food and, you know, and, and you are like horribly hungover and it is Sunday morning, there's absolutely nothing that like soothes your soul, like Willie Nelson singing Whiskey River. And <laughs> it's really amazing that like, this is why Willie Nelson has kept being Willie Nelson for, you know, over half a century and hopefully a, a, another century more. But Willie Nelson just has that, that spiritual soothing quality. And, and that was never more apparent to me than it was that, that particular Sunday morning. I will always, always be glad to, grateful to Willie Nelson for that. <laughs> I think, Derek, did you? Yeah. Um, one of the things I was actually wondering, uh, on the radio side, we kind of think about this a lot, that in this you know, current moment we're in, uh, with a heightened awareness of the way that we treat women, if there's still either the same appetite for these kind of Hammer of the Gods, Woodstock 99, almost famous sort of stories on the part of you know, listeners and readers in the audience, and if there's the same desire for bands to talk about this stuff, and I'm wondering if you guys have noticed uh, any kind of differences that way. Well, yeah, I mean, I think in terms of that being glamorized, if you're going to talk about like you know those sort of old-fashioned groupy type stories, I don't think that anyone is really interested in uh, promoting that. I don't think an artist would willingly ever talk about that, or it's certainly not in the sort of classic '70s or '80s sense, you know, like where that was really flaunted. And, uh, you know, I think any writer that approached that in sort of like a facetious kind of way would be taken to task, I think, pretty quickly and, and deservedly so. Um, I know it's interesting. I mean, there is sort of a, a retrospective reexamining, I think, of a lot of that stuff that people are going through now. Like when they talk about, I mean, like when David Bowie died, there was some of that that happened yeah. uh, where they talked about some of the stuff from his personal life. Um, I don't know if you have any uh, opinions on that, Rob. Well, it, it, another thing, that, and this is, you know, just another major thing about Woodstock 99 in relation to this stuff, is that there was a sense in the 90s that, uh, that we had gotten, like, that we had gotten past that, that we had identified in it and diagnosed the, the strains of misogyny in, in rock culture and pop culture, and that, you know, we as an audience, if if I may be pompous enough to say like sort of like a global audience, we were uh, working on that and we kind of thought that that wouldn't happen again. In the immortal words of Liz Fair, we thought that wouldn't happen again. That after the 90s, that it was possible to see like, you know, the sort of, uh, that, you know, that the, the explosion of, of feminist rock culture in the 90s, which ultimately is what the 90s were all about. Um, and to see at the very end of the 90s, in the summer of 1999, that, you know, an, an audience that was, you know, bred on Nirvana and Pearl Jam and the Beastie Boys would still have just so much primal misogyny at heart was uh, just a, a really, like, incredibly, uh, honestly, just depressing thing to witness that, that, misogyny was not going away that easily. Right. And there was something, I don't know if you remember this, I don't know if you happened to be watching the MTV Video Music Awards in September 1999, but uh, 
when the, the Beastie Boys won an award, and Adam Horowitz made that, that really quite moving speech about Woodstock 99 and about the violence against women at that festival. And uh, I, I, I don't know if it's on YouTube, but there's, there's a sense among, I think, people who had uh, lived through the 90s as rock fans, a sort of like feeling that, you know, in the post-Lollapalooza age, uh, we had gotten past that, you know, the bad old days. And Woodstock 99 was a revelation that the bad old days were as bad as ever. Well, let's transition, because you're absolutely right. Let's get to the second part of Josh's question here. He's asking some advice here, because it sounds like he's graduating from college in two weeks, and he said he's ready to pursue a career in covering music and pop culture. Uh, And he's wondering if you have any advice. Do you have any advice for this young man? Woo! Do it it because you love it, and and because doing it gives you the opportunity to do it. All you can ask of doing it is just, you know, the opportunity of doing it. And, and, and all you really can realistically expect for writing is having written. And so if it in any way turns into a, 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 a gig where there is some, some money or something like that, like coming out of it, then that's great. But ultimately it's something you have to, uh, to the extent that you commit to it emotionally, it has to be just, you know, out of pure love for doing it. Yeah. I would say, Along the same lines of what you just said, that you have to focus on the journey and not the destination. You know, I think a lot of people, when they get started, they think, I have to work at this place or I have to write a book by the time I'm 30 or, or whatever it is. And uh, if, if you think that way, the minute you achieve your goal, you're going to realize that the job is the same no matter what. You know, if you feel like, if I can only do this thing, then I'll finally be happy. Um, you're really setting yourself up for disappointment. Uh, but if you can live your life in a daily sort kind of way where you enjoy what you're doing in the moment, uh, you enjoy the process of of listening to a record or watching a movie or whatever it is and sitting down at a computer and writing about it, you know, just the process of doing that, no matter how people react to it uh, or, you know, where it ends up being printed or, or, or how many people end up reading it, um, you know, if, if just the journey to the point of getting it done, just the process of doing it, if you enjoy that, then you'll be happy in your career. And obviously you want to find a way to make money doing it so you can survive. But, um, I, I think enjoying the process is a, is an important part of being happy in life. So that would be my advice. To, yeah. To do the writing part of it. You just have to, you know, do the writing for the writing itself. Yeah. Regardless of whether anybody if anybody reads it. And and just take uh take pleasure from the small things like, hey, I wrote a good lead in this or I wrote a good transition or this was a nice thought in this graph. Like any kind of small victory you can glean from any assignment that you do that you can carry forward, um, that, that will pay off. I mean I spent the first six years of my career working for a small town newspaper covering strawberry festivals and uh tractor pulls and all these sorts of things that I didn't necessarily want to cover, but I did it because I felt like it would probably make me a better writer, and I found ways to enjoy what I was doing and uh, in the moment. And I don't want to go back to writing about tractor pulls, but if I do end up having to do that, I could do it. I'm, a, I'm an experienced tractor pull writer. so Top 10 tractors of 2005. I mean, <laughs> now you're putting me on the spot. Okay. Right. Uh, I, can't, I can't rank... 
you know, I'm a, I'm not a ranker with that. I'm I'm not a critic of tractors. I'm a I'm a newsy reporter of tractors. So I you know I don't uh, I don't make lists because that would be showing bias against uh, other tractors that are that are lower <laughs> are on the list. Are you a ranker in general? You like making lists, right? Well, sort of. I mean, some of this is driven by like professional obligation. Sometimes I'm not necessarily the person who in my life is saying like, you know, my 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 five favorite. Brands of mustard are Plotchman's, blah blah blah. You know, like I'm not ranking everything in my life, um, but I do. That must be such a great way to go through life. <laughs> if, if that I were true, I, I wish I could. If you could just, oh, you mean like, so you are a ranker? You just rank, you, you are ranking the mustards and the and the jellies and everything else in your life? Yep, I'm a, a lister, a ranker. It's like, <laughs> yeah, it's 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 completely bizarre, but you know, like I love lists of things and. Uh, and especially if there is some, you know, uh, pre- preference involved. It's, I, I, I love lists of things, sometimes even more than the things in it. Like, I love that, <laughs> that Bill Simmons book where he has, like, his book about basketball. Yeah. Where, he, you know, where much of the book is, you know, his top 100 players of all time. And understand, I know nothing about basketball. I care nothing about basketball. Honestly, like, I, out of his top 100 players, I knew maybe 15 of them. But I just... I, I love reading a, a, a well-argued, well-debated, personal, opinionated list of things. Yeah, I mean, I like reading that too. And, you know, it, it's funny because I, there's definitely people who hate lists and they feel like it, it turns art into sports or into a competition. And I always feel like, like, like I love reading lists and I also don't take them all that seriously. Like if someone makes a list of something and like... Well, I shouldn't say that because I, I do get angry sometimes <laughs> about lists. I shouldn't say that I'm above getting angry at lists because I do get angry sometimes. Or, you know, I, I'll debate a list in my head when I read it. Um, but I also feel like I'm more interested in someone's perspective. Like, to me, there's always, there's like the narrative of the list where, the, where they're talking about they're making a case for like why these things are important. But then I'm also attracted to sort of like the meta narrative of it where I like figuring out, okay, what's this person's point of view? Like, where are they coming from? Like, what is the underlying thing that they're trying to assert with this? And I always find that really fascinating, almost more fascinating than, like, the actual albums that they're ranking. Like, I'm, I'm just like, what are they working through <laughs> in their yeah. life? To, why, 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 what are they trying to figure out by making this list? You know, I always find that really interesting. So, yeah, like I, I mean, I, I tend to prefer personal lists for that reason versus like institutional lists. Like I'd rather hear. Oh, absolutely. Some crazy absolutely. person who has like, you know, like that Chuck Eddy book where he taught, where he ranks metal records is like. A, yeah. And, is, and then, and then in the preface, he talks about all the records that like he, he would, he would rank differently now. Like, right. Like a week later. That's something I love about that book. But like is, in his book too, like. Well, because he's ranking metal records, and there's like, like seven Kicks albums on there, and like Susie Quattro, and like all these. You know, he's he's basically making a case for all these records uh, that aren't necessarily conventionally recognized as great metal records, uh, which or I'm metal sure, records at all, or metal records at all. Which <laughs> which you know, I'm sure there there were lots of people who bought that book and were infuriated by it because they were like, well, you know, like where is Black Sabbath and Metallica and all this stuff. You know, I don't want to read about kicks, blow your fuse, or whatever that record's called, um, or Cool Kids. I think is 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 a kicks record. Um, 
Do you know? Do you, do you know Kicks? They're sort of like an like an ACDC like band that like Chuck oh, loves. Oh yes, I know Kicks. Yes, <laughs> I like I like Kicks a lot. Uh, I discovered yeah, Kicks because of Chuck Eddie, like because Chuck Eddie loved Kicks, and yes. they were all it's over Charlie, that list. I, I met the singer of Kicks at um, at at uh, the uh, Rocklahoma Festival a few years ago, and. Uh, and I was telling him about that book, and, and he had he had he had never heard of Chuck, and he had never read the book. And I was like, I, I was like, wow, because this is kind of like you know the testament to your life's work. <laughs> no. I was like, you really should read this book. You are the singer of Kicks. This is kind of like a big deal. Right. Um, see, that was that was a you know Rocklahoma. Talk about a perfect festival. It's like <laughs> it's just '80s hair metal, and just everybody you know like. It was like a really bizarrely charitable and communal festival where like everybody's been through the same career ups and downs. Everybody's had their, their dreams dashed to the floor and, and everybody is very well aware that they are not a star star. So it, it was an unbelievably like uh, s- sweet and tender celebration of a festival. Uh, it's just a really beautiful thing to be in, 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 a, in a field in prior Oklahoma, uh, just watching one 80s hair metal band after another, like with a bunch of other people who, who, who love that stuff. It was a really beautiful festival. See, I'm glad that you brought that up because now we have the yin to Woodstock 99's Yang. You know, like, the, like the, that's like the good, we have the good festival and the bad festival that we've talked about in this podcast, uh, Rock yeah. Oklahoma. Um, okay, so we have time for one more question here. And uh, I know you got to get going and I got to get going too, but we have to. Uh, answer this question from Stuart in Virginia because he obviously listened to the five albums test episode that you and I did uh, you know, several months ago. He wants to know like, which artist has most recently gotten to their fifth consecutive great album. Is there an artist that you feel like has recently sort of passed that threshold that you can, rem- that you could think of right now? Wow. Since, since you and I talked about it. <laughs> or maybe they, or, or maybe someone else that you just want to mention that, has recently kind of gotten to that point. Wow. Because uh, I think I have someone in mind. Because I would say for me, and I might have said this on the last episode, I don't remember. So I'm going to say it now. I think The National is like the last one I can remember because they did it last summer with Sleep Well Beast. I think that was like a really great record and that would have put them into the Five Timers Club uh, for the Five Albums Test. So I'm going to say them coming right to mind. I know you argued Taylor Swift on the last record, which is kind of a, well, wait, had reputation, I don't think reputation had come out yet. When we uh, talked. No, no, it hasn't. So she's been six since, since we last, we last. Oh, right. Okay. So, so, so you, so you, so but you, so you don't keep her at five. You say she goes to six with reputation. Yeah. She, but, but I think, I think since you and I talked about the five album test, I think Parquet Courts might've joined the club. Have they put out five? Well, they, their new album, it, it depends probably on how you tabulate, you know, EPs. Because, uh, you know, if you're counting Monastic Living as an album, then then, then they're starting from scratch. Um, but uh, but I think, cause, you know, because they have a new album that's really great. Yeah, so what, So it's like Light Up Gold? Uh, and, the, and the one before that, which I'm spacing on the title, but it's really good. And then Sunbathing Animal and... Uh... The one that what's that for sunbathing animal? Uh, it's like the one they just put on out. The title of that one too. The one from last year, but it, but yeah, that's 
you know, they they've totally they've totally joined the club with their new album. See, but you but you ride for uh, for reputation because that was definitely a record that a lot of people didn't get or because I, I I actually like that record too. I I, I felt like I was defending that one. Uh, oh, not on my own, but like it was lonely record. though. Everybody listened to the record, liked it. It was just a thing where you know, and this is sort of the you know, the phase of record reviewing that we're in now, where there's so much pressure to review an album within like you know minutes of hearing it for the first time because there's such a huge like pressure from editors for Friday morning reviews, and albums are released Thursday night at midnight. So uh, what you have, and we just saw this with the Justin Timberlake album as well, is. Uh, you can tell a lot of the reviews are mostly written before they heard the album, and so they're reviewing basically the pre-release uh, branding. Well, and it's it's funny how, how honestly it's, it's funny how easy it is to bust a review that's done that. And so with Taylor Swift reviews, he had a lot of the reviews where you know three quarters of the review would be about you know her image makeover with "Look What You Made Me Do," which ended up being a song that had absolutely nothing to do with the rest of the album, either thematically or musically. It's just a one-off single. I mean, that, uh, you know, a, a, a head fake to throw everybody off, off what she was actually doing with this album. And when people actually heard Reputation, it was like, no, actually, it has nothing to do with what could you maybe do. I mean, it, it does seem that there's been a series of sort of big name records lately where there's almost something in the air against the artist in gen- like in particular, like Taylor Swift, you mentioned Justin Timberlake. I had this discussion when we were talking about the Jack White record, which is certainly a flawed record. I mean, if you don't like that record, I understand. However, I feel like in the case of all three of those people, uh, and maybe even Arcade Fire too, and I, I was harder on, on, on their last record, but there did seem to be something in the air where it was like, unless they produced like an unassailable record, critics were kind of gunning for them like 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 on their records and they all kind of made um risky imperfect kind of overextended records that like if you wanted to knock them you could but you could also if you were a little bit more charitable look at them as sort of um uh you know like lovably flawed or you know you, you could enjoy sort of like the ambition of those records maybe a little bit more if you were more charitable but it did seem like like there's there's been hostility towards some of the big superstars i feel like lately in critical circles do you do you agree with that yes definitely and and i think that also you know that plays into that you know the pressure of you know like doing the review super quick um and and so with jack white it's like it's easier to to review basically your feelings about Jack White than it is to you know to waste precious time listening to the album. Um, so that's you know that's 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 another one where you know it's 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 a thing where it just it, it it takes time to go with the album where it's where it's where it's going for better or for worse. Um, and and you know with with reputation, I mean it's it's comical in retrospect that people thought that reputation was going to be a whole album of with what you made me do, which is, I mean, it's funny because it reminds me, I'm just like showing my, my, you know, my, my long memory here. I apologize for that. But, but, but when Michael Jackson was, was about to release Thriller and everybody thought it was going to be a whole album of The Girl Is Mine, <laughs> like, that was the first single. And everybody thought it was going to be, you know, all like, you know, like fluffy, goofy, corny ballads with the word dog on in them. <laughs> so people were even more blown away by Thriller like just because 
he had purposefully sort of led people off the trail of where he was going with this album. So it's, you know, part of what made Thriller really mind-blowing at the time when it came out at the very end of 82 was that everybody was primed for, you know, The Girl Is Mine, the album. And I think that's kind of the same thing Taylor Swift did with Look What You Made Me Do. That might be the only thing that Look What You Made Me Do and The Girl Is Mine have in common. Well, and I have to make a confession about Look What, what look about Look What You Made Me Do because when that video came out, I was on Twitter like a lot of people and I was cracking jokes about that song and like, oh, this song is disjointed, it doesn't make any sense, blah, blah, blah. And then like a couple weeks later, I was in Nashville in an Uber and uh, this guy was playing Look What look what you made me do as he was driving me to the airport and i realized that i actually really liked the song like in the uber driving to Na- uh, to the nashville airport that song made sense all of a sudden and that wow. kind of made me realize like okay yeah like you kind of need to sometimes be in the right frame of mind or in the right environment to to get a song and being on twitter with like other people who are cracking wise that's like not the best environment like to approach a song sometimes, you know, like if you're going to approach it with an open mind, you know, uh, if you're approaching it with like, uh, this song is like not a home run and like there are definitely openings for me to be snarky with this, um, you know, that, that's definitely going to affect your judgment, I think, a little bit. So sure. that's, that's something I realized about myself with that song. Because I was like, in the Uber, going to the Nashville airport, this song, this song is doing it for me now. So, <laughs> so I have to admit I that. Will never, I will never have that feeling. I will never know <laughs> what that feels like. Well, I'll tell you, go to Nashville right now, get in an Uber, have them play that song, and get back to me. You, I think I'm you... Actually, I'm not sure that is the best advertisement for going to Nashville. <laughs> Like, by the time you're leaving, even Look What You Made Me Do will sound like a good Taylor Swift song to you. I love that I am defending a Taylor Swift song to you. Like, I just love that that's how this podcast is ending. Because, like, we started off talking about Pavement, and we're ending talking about Taylor Swift. So this is obviously a Rob Sheffield podcast. But it's ending with me. Exactly. But it's ending with me liking a Taylor Swift song more than you, which is incredible to me. It's well, like, you know, but, well, all right, so you're kind of, you're, you're provoking me, but you know, Delicate is a very pavementy sounding Taylor Swift song. <laughs> it really does sound like, you know, like a, a, a pavement Taylor Swift song. That not it, isn't it, isn't it, isn't it? That's like, yeah. I mean, that's a real like, you know, Loretta Scar's old to begin, you know, grounded like Stephen Maltmiss kind of like way for a song to build. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, the, the Taylor Swift pavement connection, which goes so deep, but uh, but really like delicate, is almost a, a, a shockingly pavement-like Taylor Swift song. See, okay, I think we've just tied the bow on this episode with that. I think that I, it's not going to get any better than that. That's like I feel like maybe, this is, this... maybe look what you made me do is is the first helmet record, and, and <laughs> delicate is is. You know, side two of Crooked Rain, Crooked Rain. Oh, man. See, I feel like this was like an O. Henry story. You know, like, we, <laughs> we just totally tied it up with kind of a surprise ending, but it's poetic and it works. Now you know the rest of the story. <laughs> Rob, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. I would have not wanted to spend our 100th episode with anyone else. So thank uh, you so much, Rob. Congratulations on 100 episodes, and thanks for 100 episodes of awesomeness. Uh, and, and anybody listening to this, Oh my God, are you going to love Stephen's book, uh, which is uh, absolutely insanely great, in which uh, I assume like all Celebration Rock fans are uh, just 
waiting to get their hands on. But it is it is even better than than uh, than we all would have hoped. Oh, and, Rob, uh, thank you for writing it. Your check is in the mail, my friend. Thank you so much for saying that. It, they, thank you. <laughs> You're going to be hearing from a lot of people, but it's a book that is you know about a moment in in music history and, and music culture that really reckons with you know where we are at. It, it, it's really just a book I think a lot of people will feel like we've been waiting for. Thank you so much, I, man. That you're, you're, you're the sweetest man in rock journalism. Thank you so much, man. I hope you have, have a good rest of your day. Thank you. All right, man. Take care. All right. That was me and Rob getting into it in the podcast, going from pavement to Taylor Swift. And then Rob gets the little ribbon out and he ties it all together by making a genius observation about the hidden links between pavement and Taylor Swift. That is the improvisational power of a great rock critic. <laughs> that he was able to pull off there. So that was a lot of fun. Uh, so yeah, 100th episode is now in the can. I hope we have 100 more. Derek, we did it. Are we going to go have a beer or something? I we think did, we need to. We yeah. need to have a dinner or something, man. Um, so shout out to Derek. Thank you, sir, for being with me on all 100 episodes. My pleasure. Going forward. Uh, Josh Copperman, You've uh, you haven't been with us for 100 episodes. You've you've you your song has been on about I think a dozen of them. But you you are a part of the Celebration Rock family anyway. Thank you, Josh, for writing our theme song, and thanks to all of you for listening again. Um, you know, without your support, we wouldn't be here. So thanks for leaving reviews on iTunes and talking about us on social media and just telling your friends about us. Uh, that all makes a difference. So thank you so much for doing that. Uh, we will. Be back again with episode 101 next week here on the Celebration Rock Podcast. Uh, We will talk to you then. On the Westwood One Podcast Network.